hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife and episode three of The Mysterious Planet with the wonderful Jason. Say hello, Jason. Hello. Nice to be back again. Not that I've gone anywhere. But <laughs> <laughs> He's going out on consecutive days, but we're doing this all in one evening. Um, <laughs> once again, just, just to mention it, should people wish to find you on Twitter, where do they need to go or what's your handle? My handle on Twitter is Jason underscore JTT. Uh, my Twitter is mostly Doctor Who. Yeah. Currently a little bit of Blake 7, but mostly Doctor Who. Hey. Um, and I've got, as well as the VHS covers thread, which I believe I mentioned when we did episode one, uh, I also did, uh, I'm also doing an On This Day <coughs> um, Doctor Who thread, which was triggered off when a load of people tweeted on the 2nd of January that this is the first appearance of Captain Yates and Joe Grant and The Master and Terry Orthons. And I thought, ah, I wonder what episodes were transmitted on any day of the year and so on. So I started up a thread um, because being the kind of person that I am, I actually have an Excel spreadsheet with all the episodes of every television show that I have on DVD listed by date. So I can pull wow. them out and sort them by date. So I did that with all the Doctor Who ones. So I've got, yes, I know, terribly sad, but... I think that's amazing. That, that, is, that is dedication. But, uh, but yeah, so every day I'll pop up at some point during the day and say, on this day we had episode three of whatever and episode two of something else and... Well, I mean, what's lovely about that as well? Finding that interesting. Well, that as well, and you also you're probably prompting people to watch things as well on the day they were broadcast, oh, which is lovely. That would be that would be nice. That would be nice if people were doing it. But that's where you find things, little things. When you do that, you find out how many episodes are transmitted on certain days, and some of them are really busy, and some of them are almost devoid of Doctor Who entirely. Have you so, found a single day where, like across the years, no Doctor Who was transmitted? Yes, there are a few, mostly in July and August. Oh, um, of course. I don't yeah. want to spoil it. And it all depends on whether you count the animated ones, the Infinite Quest and things like that as part of it or not. Right. Um, but if you get to, I think June the 15th is the first, first day in the entire year when there are no new Doctor Who episodes transmitted on that day, <clears throat> if you don't include the animated um, things. But... If you were around on June the sixth, June the fifteenth, nineteen sixty-eight, you would have seen episode two of the Evil of the Daleks on their repeat. So, ah, okay, yeah, 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 you got a fact. But there was a fair few repeats as well, wasn't there, through the seventies? Yes, like when you go to like the BBC two, BBC two repeats later on as well. Like there's a lot to factor in there. BBC two repeats of ninety two and ni uh, ninety three are really what got me into to being a fan. That's when I started watching it more because I. I started off my how I became a fan is quite an interesting story in itself. I think <clears throat> it's one of those weird total coincidences that you would never believe. Even the doctor would find this hard to believe. I think Go on. my school library had some target novelizations and I've been aware of Doctor Who. And of course I watched it when I was you know, much younger. I watched Trial of the Time Lord and some of the Sylvester McCoy ones. And the first target novelization I read out of the library was The Ark in Space by Ian Martyr, which is absolutely fantastic. Mm. One of the best in the range, I think. And I've still got it. Um, when I managed to get my own copy, I kept it, even though, sadly, I had to get rid of the rest of my target collection because I had to slim down my... Uh, oh, books. I have a similar <laughs> heartbreaking ago, story. Many years ago. But I kept The Ark in Space. Anyway, I read it and I loved it. 
Um, it was my first Tom Baker story. It was the first kind of getting the hang of the idea of how many different doctors there were and things like that. And I actually took it out of the library a couple of times. And a period of time went by later. And then one time during a wet break time, I was walking past the classroom and I heard Doctor Who theme coming out of it. Uh -huh. I thought, I know that piece of music. I poked my head around the door and it turned out that one of my PE teachers ran a Doctor Who club at lunchtime where they basically uh -huh. just got together and watched Doctor Who. Um, and would you believe it, I poked my head around the door just as the words The Ark in Space Part 1 came uh -huh. through. <laughs> And I thought that is an insane coincidence. I love reading the book. I'll see what the story's like. And I was absolutely hooked. Oh. So that was it. That was how I got into it. Imagine being if that had been a completely different story. We may not like, be yeah, here I, today. Yeah, I'd have, well, I've still stayed and watched it, I'm sure. But yeah, just that I couldn't believe the coincidence. It was the Ark in Space Part One. I said, right, I've got to watch this because I love the book. And that was it. I was absolutely hooked. Jason, the universe works in strange ways, you know. It definitely does. You were destined does. for Doctor Who, I think. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> we, however, are destined for the Mysterious Planet Episode 3. Um, Indeed. I am queued up, if you are. I am. Let's go then in five, four, three, two, one. Here, oh, there we go. Mine's died. Uh, so, okay, so kicking into episode three, we were talking a little bit um, off mic between episodes, um, and you were saying about how there was a particular Doctor Who story that was um, quite useful during a, a turbulent time in your life. I don't know if you want to share that story. Yeah, um, I kind of have to now because you said you do. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the story is Earthshock. Um, I love Earthshock, and it's a significant one for me because it was my first ever Doctor Who VHS. It was a present for my 13th birthday. Um, I've been a fan for a while. I'd seen a few stories. I borrowed videos from other people, but the first one I actually owned was Earthshock. And why it's significant is because my 13th birthday happened to fall between my parents announcing that they were getting a divorce and my mother actually moving out. So that was a really difficult birthday for me. Um, and fair play to my parents. They played it brilliantly. They didn't cause any unnecessary drama at home. It wasn't a bad divorce. It was a very amicable one, um, very amicable separation. Uh, they never fell into the trap, I think, that some parents do oh, abusing right. their children as bartering chips yeah. or weapons against the other or anything like that. It was all very, it was done as smoothly as they could manage. But I said to them, you know, obviously on my birthday, I don't want to know about this. I don't want to think about this. And they said, fine, fair enough. And they didn't, you know, got to give them credit for it. They didn't mention it on my birthday. We had a really nice day. I watched Doctor Who. It was good, but difficult. But Earthshot for me is still very much, uh, one of those stories that I, I love for various reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the story. Even though <laughs> Which is, uh, well, thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, and to circle it back around to Trial of a Time Lord, um, do you remember the, the Trial of a Time Lord tin set that came out in, the, I think it was the 90s? Uh, so it that was 93, the 30th anniversary. I do remember it, yes. That was the first time I'd gone to Woolworths to buy a video cassette on the day of release. That came out um the month that my dad went to prison 
uh, basically uh, our life fell apart so we we had a very nice house and we lost the house my dad went to prison my mom was upset a lot was happening and i remember this coming out and for about a month i watched this through like religiously and it was such a big epic story sort of taking a place across time and space it really took me away from the, the problems i was having at the time and like in the heart of it there was this really lovely i found colin baker's just a lovely central figure almost like i don't want to be too toy about it but almost like a, a, a father-like figure when my father had let me down in a very big way this entire story the whole 14 episodes it really means something to me in that it came along at a time when i needed to be taken away from the real world and i think this is like the ultimate example of that for me that's that's brilliant i mean that makes my story about watching it when i was six pale into insignificance <laughs> but, yeah, but interestingly i had actually no, i'd forgotten about that until you you shared your story Doctor Who for me has always been a bit of escapism. It has been a comfort, it's been a blanket. Yeah. It's been all kinds of things over the years um, because I, you know we've all been through a lot. We've all been through some crap. Let's be honest. No one's had a perfect life, no. uh, and I had various things going on in my life that didn't make me happy. But Doctor Who was always there, and i loved it it is I like a constant it. isn't it it's like a it's, it, and like you say it is like like throwing a blanket around your shoulders and feeling safe for a bit and it's one of those things i mean some people say how can you watch the same thing over and over again it's the security and the comfort of knowing what's coming yeah you know that just around the corner is that really exciting bit that made you jump when you were a kid or as I said in part one, that bit that scared me so much, I didn't watch the final episode yeah. of the trial because I didn't know it was the final episode. <laughs> but you know it's coming and you can really get into it and really enjoy it. And the more you watch it, the more you get out of it, I think. Uh, well, and that's you really... see things. And because people are constantly writing about it and talking about yeah. it, yeah. you always get new viewpoints. And so you go back and re-watch something after someone said something. Oh, yeah, I never thought of it that way the um one of the joys of this format has been speaking to so many different people about stories i know so well and just in like the first two episodes you've already like made me look at this story that i know back to front and inside out in really different ways it's a it's a it's a joy to talk about doctor who it is definitely a joy to talk about doctor who so this is one of the things this scene coming up has one of those weird things it's strange what you remember go on <clears throat> when you think of all the things that are happening that could be considered memorable one of the images that sticks really strongly in my head from when i was six years old is this bit of the doctor reaching to shake out and oh nearly sticking his hand in the pot <laughs> and i have no idea why that image should uh, be in my head so strongly from when i was six years old but i remember it vividly from that time no idea what the plot was about when i was six years old because you know all sorts of things but but that moment where he just nearly sticks his hand in the fire just has gone into my head and stayed there. <clears throat> Do you know what stuck out for me from this scene? And I, I'm sorry, I am going to lower the tone for a second. I have been known to do this. It was those weird gimp masks that the um, the guards are wearing. There's a bizarre yeah. fetish going on in this tribe. It's um, yeah, it's a bit disturbing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is rather strange. Um, you know, where did these people get all this clothing from? Because yeah. clearly they weren't dressed like that when they escaped from the underground. So all of these people, they've come from Drafro's lair, haven't they? And created their Supposedly own civilization. So, yeah. 
what I what I like about this is Broken Tooth, who seems to be the only one who's got out of control hair and beard. Yeah. Everyone else has, seems somehow to have a hairstyle or shape themselves, and he looks like. <laughs> Do you think they? Because um, um, this this story sort of plays with that idea of um, like science versus uh, like prim primitivism, shall we say? Um, and you've got Glitz there with a very double view on the primitives and their way of life and them being very suspicious of, of you know, them and their science fiction um, names. For, do you think that's played out quite well here? That kind of science versus... Not so much, I think. It doesn't quite come off for me. I can't quite figure out that in... You know, such limited amount of time, really, only a couple of centuries. Yeah. They've totally yeah. forgotten everything <clears throat> about the underground and the survival chambers and the sleepers and everything else, and they'd have no idea what the black light converter is, and it just seems a bit odd. Also, why is Broken Tooth called Broken Tooth? That doesn't seem like a name that would have been <laughs> settled on in, you know, this underground place where people have names like Hunker, Tantal, yeah. Balazar, Merdine, Grell, Broken Tooth. Aye. Yeah, that's where he's look. now, but doesn't seem to fit where he came from. But Balazar knows him as Broken Tooth. So That's true, know. yeah. That, yeah. So maybe he should have said, oh, you know, oh, Bob, I recognise you from, you know, down below. No, it's Broken Tooth now. Yeah, no one's called Bob anymore, no. are they? No. <laughs> oh, no, now we'll just shove everybody in the cell together. Why not? Okay, so we have this amazing sequence in a minute where the L1 robot comes uh, staggering through that wall, which looks yeah. like it is specifically built for that purpose. It does. It does very much, yes. Anyway, here we are. They're all locked in the cell, so now let's have a bit of exposition. Right. Well, it is part oh, three. Part three, actually, uh, part three is where the exposition normally hits, isn't it? It is on and normally in a prison cell somewhere where nothing else is happening. So let's just chat about the plot. Uh, I mean, this is this is the part that I have to suspend my disbelief with, um, because I'm also a keen amateur astronomer. I've been interested in astronomy space wow. starting for decades. Um, I'm actually the chairman of the Ashford Astronomical Society as well. So Gosh. Uh, if anyone wants to come along, find us on Facebook and Twitter, Ashford Astronomical Society. Um, but they say repeatedly that the Earth has been moved two light years. The nearest star to Earth is four light years away. So if you shunt Earth two light years, no spacefaring civilization is going to be confused by that. They might go, well, that's all right. It's not quite where we left it. But it's not going to confuse them because it's still going to be the only thing in that part of space, even if it's slightly off to the right. So if they said 200 light years or something, that would have been a bit better, I think. I've got a big question for you then, because that is fa it's fascinating to be talking to somebody who understands the science. <clears throat> Does it ever affect your enjoyment? If it, if it doesn't make Sometimes. sense. Okay. What's, what's the most heinous um, example of this? I was known in 2006 on the Planet Scaro forums for a while as the impossible planet guy because I went off on one and got into probably the longest thread that was on that forum at that point about the business, about the planet that is in orbit around a black oh, hole being yeah. impossible. Uh -huh. When, and I'm not going to start ranting about it too much, 
but suffice to say that most of our evidence for the existence of black holes comes from studying things that orbit them. Mm-hmm. So being in orbit around a black hole is not impossible. Ah, okay. So, oh, so you're so you're that. saying it should be called the possible planet. It's one of those things where, and I've said this about a few episodes, and actually I had a letter published in Doctor Who magazine at the time of Evolution of the Daleks as well, mm-hmm. um, for the same thing. It doesn't affect my enjoyment. This is something I want to make absolutely clear. I still love the show, but it grates a little bit when they try and put real science in and they cock it up enormously. Do you feel like they, they should, like, uh, a bit a bit like, I don't know, Star Trek, I don't know how accurate that is, but I know they have, like, scientific advisors on that. I don't know whether you want a scientific advisor, but I think if you're going to research the science and it doesn't quite do what your story requires you to do, make something up. Because, like, cause like to me, have... you know, the idea of, you know, uh, pushing the Earth out of all, it's just an exciting, it's a, a, an exciting idea, you know. I'm like, oh, wow, you Absolutely. know, it's, it's science fiction, it's, 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 you know, in the realms of fantasy. And it, it feeds into the idea, one of the things as well about this is that it feeds into the idea of how powerful the time lords are, that they can just reach out and shove a planet across space. Mm. That's not a trivial thing. You know, they just <clears> go, oh, we want to move the planet, and they do. That's tremendous power that they've got there. Well, they have, been, not really they have been known to overreact in the past, power. haven't they? The Time Lords tend to overreact uh, when they're covering their tracks. They do a little bit. but uh, See, now we're back in the trial room with an exposition scene that explains how we're seeing these things in the first place. Yeah, see, now, like, I don't need that. So that, that's trying to add, like, um, an explanation. But, like, I just assume the Matrix is amazing. And can... But here's another one, though. This is where Robert Holmes, again, is rewriting... I'm going to use the C word. I'm very sorry. Oh, canon. Oh, my word. I, I didn't know where you were going then. <laughs> that that C word, canon, I hate it. I really, really yeah, hate it. Yeah, me too. Because especially recently with the timeless children, you know, this corner of the internet has exploded with their rewritten canon. It's terrible. Doctor Who has never had a consistent no. canon. It's been rewriting it since 1964, for crying out loud. Look, you had Robert you know, Holmes in charge just... at one point, and he completely changed the rules in The Two Doctors, and you've got Terence Dix who turned around and said, look, canon's what I can remember. Yeah, because here they say the Matrix is a knowledge bank fed by the experiences of Time Lords, wherever they may be. Hmm. But when the Matrix was introduced, it was where they plugged in the dead Time Lords to return their memories, and given the Time Lords policy of non-interference, where the hell would all these Time Lords that are feeding the Matrix be in the first place? Yeah, I never thought about that. We're given to understand they basically sit around on Gallifrey, so what yeah. exactly are they feeding the Matrix with? You know, the Doctor's memories are probably the most exciting things in there. Yeah. He's actually fed by the experiences well, of Time Lords. Well, I'd say the, the Doctor's... Doctor Who for 14 weeks. <laughs> the Doctor's and maybe all those villains that seem to come from Gallifrey and go out and do terrible things out there. <laughs> They're also very exciting. But if, but also, if you think, you know, don't think about it too hard because if, well, that was an example actually of what I was talking about, about Hunker and Tandrel becoming better characters when I think it's Tandrel turns around and just, you know, he's quite likely to win because Drathro's yeah. not, so he's becoming a bit more of a character and there's rather like, than the irritating little nitwit that he was at the beginning. Between the two of them, there's like increased panic from this point on, isn't there? Like, the, yeah. Like, and I love it in episode four where they're like, <laughs> you know, we should just leg it. Let's go. <laughs> Let's just go. <laughs> oh, here's the whole, oh. I think you're up to something. Yeah. Why? 
I have my suspicions. Why? I don't think I'll tell anyone yet. Oh, good grief. <laughs> I know. And this, this kind of, this, like, I, I get what they're trying to do here. They're trying to make it that these characters have got a history. It doesn't quite come off, does it? The relationships Not here. Quite. Although I do really like it, weirdly, when that character, what's his name, Grell, when he dies and Merdine is genuinely upset about it, that's the one point where I'm actually sold on their previous relationship, you know? Absolutely, absolutely, I agree. Oh, okay, can I just take a moment here for Joan Sims with a gun in her hand. We go forward! Oh, she's loving this now, from this point on. Oh, she's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. Um, do you know what's sad about her is uh, obviously she did the carry on movies and then she had um, a period of alcoholism um and this was the point where she, i think she she'd done some miss marple she did this doctor who and some other bits and bobs and her career was really kind of um, going back on track again and yeah. and then obviously she passed not too long after this this is, but this is what I was saying earlier about why this isn't stunt casting. By this point, she'd done dramatic acting. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and she who's to say that the comedic... And even actually, I want to, I want to bring myself up on that, calling her just the carry-on stuff. Yeah. There is absolutely yeah. nothing wrong with the dramatic acting in the carry-on films. They're remembered for all the kind of oh, make from yes, oh, oh, and all the farcical men dressing up in women's underwear and all that kind of stuff. But if you watch, especially some of the earlier ones. They're comedy films with totally straight performances in them. Yeah. One of my favourites is Carry On Cabby because it's hilarious, but everyone's playing the roles so brilliantly. And Sid James is not just the le lecherous, yeah. that he's remembered for. He's a really rounded character and he's brilliant in it. So, I mean, the Carry On films get a lot of flack because they've been oh, remembered for no. but the like, excesses. Do you not think the Carry On films film. are a bit like Doctor Who? They are like a, a real comfort viewing, aren't they? You kind of know oh, what you're going to yeah. get. Um, but they are, like, in their own way, they are very skillfully done. And what you said there about comic performances, I think comic timing is one of the hardest things an actor can get right because I've seen many actors fall on their face. <laughs> Especially in you know, like a yeah. lot of American shows and American sitcoms, um, I think if you can, and they do that in the Carry On films like sublimely. The timing is terrific. Absolutely, absolutely. Comedy is very difficult to do, um, <clears throat> and I think they pull it off quite well in the Carry On films. Colin Baker just did a sublime uh, comedy performance I'd ever seen, which has nothing to do with Doctor Who at all. But it's Andre Previn in Morecambe Wise show oh, with the Greek piano yes. concerto. Yeah, he wasn't an actor. He didn't even have time to go to the rehearsals, and yet he is absolutely amazing in it. It's pitch perfect. His timing, his facial expressions, everything. So I mean, it's held up, isn't it? It's one of the best pieces of British comedy. Wow. It, it really is. It really is. And so, yeah, you go. know what? Had this French is, this is a bit where they go a bit kind of, how does the door open? Turn yeah. that. Well, go on then. Oh, good sake. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Tony Selby laughs throughout the commentary of these bits because Joan Sims off camera went, we go forward to Marks and Spencer's. Apparently that was the joke she kept cracking. Forward! <laughs> but, like, you know, like, maybe French and Saunders would have aced these roles then because I'll tell you what, you watched them doing straight performances in their, like... Um, movie homages 
they're brilliant. Yeah. They're absolutely, you know. This is what I was going to say about Halo and Pace, actually, when we talked about stunt casting in episode one mm. and why I think it didn't come off for me. Um, I think if you cast a single person in a role that plays against their type, that's fine. But if you cast a double act right. in a double act, yeah, I think it's very hard to get away from the fact that it's Hale and Pace. And I think probably would have had the same problem if it had been French and Saunders as Glitz that's and Zibber. That's a great point. It would have been very hard not to see it as French and Saunders. Yeah. No matter how brilliant their performances were, <clears throat> it's kind of like, I mean, can you imagine casting Morecambe and Wise as a pair of shop assistants? Everyone would be expecting the paper bag yeah. trick or, you know, the what do you think of it so far rubbish stuff because they are Morecambe and Wise. French and Saunders are French and Saunders, Hale and Pace or Hale and Pace. Now, there's nothing wrong with Hale and Pace's performance. No. And it is just by... It takes you out of the action, though, for a second, doesn't it? Because to me, so it takes me out of the action that yeah. this pair of um, shop assistants are played by a comedy double act because they are Hale and Pace. It would so, be it would be like casting the two Ronnies as um, Hunker and Trandrill. Imagine the two Ronnies playing these parts. Yeah, all you'd see is the two Ronnies. You know, exactly. Yeah, if you if you cast a well-known double act as a pair of roles, I think you you don't separate them in the public's mind. Um, Do you know what I think? One of the best stunt casting moments is Ken Dodd. I think I oh, think that works brilliantly. <laughs> Like he's a yeah, he's a buffoonish sort of character, and so he's not really playing against type, but he absolutely. And then they murder him, which is you know just hilarious. Yes. Yeah. No. Ken Ken Dodd again is another one of those ones. Oh my god, it's Ken Dodd. Yeah, and he's brilliant. He's just he do, he comes in to do a role which is fairly straightforward. It's not like he's playing. It's not like he's playing a villain or anything like that. Can I just oh, say that's here? That's the doctor in. In one line. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, that that's it. Say. There, isn't it? Um, that's that's it. <clears throat> but that that that's, really that's... wasn't like you know. I'd say in season twenty two, his line would be, you know, uh, Perry. You know, I'm I'm going to go off and murder the villain now. You know, that's kind of what he was saying the previous year. Now he's saying I'm going to save people. You know, if I can do it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think the, the sick doctor's violence in season twenty-two is somewhat overstated um, in criticism of it. I think he's mostly okay, actually. I quite like season twenty-two. Oh no, I'm a I'm a huge I'm a, I mean I'm a massive advocate of Colin Baker in general. Um, interestingly, I don't know if you've oh, ever. Oh, yeah, you're stupid. Yeah, you probably do look like one then. I like that line. <laughs> you can throw that one at me if you like. <laughs> I have to mention for one second that Glenn Murphy is a very pretty man. Um, and that does not hamper my enjoyment at all. And I'm only saying that because I feel as if the, the heterosexual uh, quotient of the audience have a lot more to look at throughout Classic Who than me. This so, bit. This bit. Yeah. Beep, beep, beep. They bleep the dialogue. Yeah. Could they really not edit the evidence <laughs> unless conspicuously than bleeping the dialogue? <laughs> you know, and it's kind of and then shove it in a again, public trial. Why, yeah, you know, this is why I because they clearly edited the evidence because it's all nicely cut together, going from scene to scene to scene. Why didn't they just cut that line entirely rather than bleeping it? You know, it's this again. This is one of those bits where the trial doesn't really make. 
<clears throat> sense. I know what they were trying to do. Yeah. They've sown a mystery now, but it just... It, it does offer it, intrigue, it but when you, when you start thinking about the Tigers covering their tracks, having a public trial and you know slapping it on a screen for everyone to see, that is perhaps not as inconspicuous as they should be. Yeah, could have just cut the scene a little bit earlier. <laughs> what you said about um, the, the you know the, all the evidence being told in order. Do you remember how that's described? Was it epistopic interfaces of the Matrix? Two typical instances from separate epistopic interfaces of the spectrum. Wow! I thought I was yeah. being a geek then. Well done. Oh, okay. Like the only one that doesn't actually finish right on a close-up. Mm. Bang! He actually pulls the trigger. That's quite unusual for a Doctor Who cliffhanger because he's actually fired the gun rather than just pointing it and threatening it. Although well, the lines are very stuck. What are you? What are you hunting? You. You. <laughs> I like that cliffhanger. That's that's one of the best ones in the trial. I think. I have to be honest. It's my... The competition is not strong. But... <laughs> well, you say that. I think there are three terrific cliffhangers in Terror of the Vervoids. Terror of the Vervoids one, Terror of the Vervoids two, and Terror of the Vervoids four. I think all ends. I think my favourite one of the season is the charge must now be genocide. Plus, a, yeah. obviously, a whacking great close-up of Colin Baker. Yeah. And I didn't talk about the thing I was going to talk about in episode three, which was my favourite Colin Baker moment. Oh, no. Mind and we no. literally have 30 seconds of this recording. Can we save it for episode four? We can save it for episode four. Remind me right when the credits open at episode four, I will tell you my favourite Colin Baker moment in Trial of the Time War. And is it your favourite kind of making moment across his entire era? I think it probably is, yes. I am literally salivating to find out what that is. Okay. 